Welcome to the Refuge Recovery Podcast. Refuge Recovery is a worldwide community of people who are using the practices of mindfulness, compassion, forgiveness, and generosity to heal the pain and suffering that addiction has caused in our lives and the lives of our loved ones. This podcast is for all those interested in and all those already practicing refuge recovery to find freedom from addiction of all kinds. To support this podcast and your refuge recovery, please donate using the link in the show notes. We're, uh, this is our sixth week, and we're on the um, chapter five of the book, The First Factor of the Eightfold Path. Um, and we've been through the first three truths, and we're opening onto the fourth truth. And just as a reminder, um, addiction is the cause of a lot of extra suffering in our lives. And repetitive first truth, the repetitive craving is... Um, the cause, the underlying causes and conditions that lead to addiction has its roots in the normal human condition of, of craving and aversion and self-centeredness. And um, recovery is possible. In refuge recovery, we take, we take refuge in uh, the potential of our own recovery and the uh, Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path, this systematic process for healing the root causes of addiction and we um, practice the eightfold path and we're starting tonight to open on a week by week um, exploration of these eight folds so i'm on page 27 if you want to crack your books or you can just listen understanding we come to know that everything is ruled by causes, by cause and effect. The four truths are an ongoing practice. In this step, we gain insight into the impermanent, unsatisfactory, and impersonal nature of life. Forgiveness is possible and necessary. So just reflecting on your own experience of these cause and effect, what we call karma. Uh, the four truths is an ongoing practice, always seeing the suffering, the cause of suffering, the end of suffering. And the three characteristics of reality that we live in, where everything is impermanent. Because everything is impermanent, there's no lasting satisfaction to be found in sensual, material experiences. And um, there's an impersonal nature to what we're experiencing. So much of what our mind and body does is not self, is not personal, it's just the human condition. We understand that recovery begins when we renounce and abstain from all substances or addictive behaviors regardless of the specific substance we have come, become addicted to. Forgiveness, non-harming actions, service, generosity are a necessary part of the recovery process, and we can't do it alone. Community support and wise guidance are an integral, integral part of the path to recovery. First things first, stop, abstain, renounce, refrain, quit, let go. 
If you can do it on your own, good. If you need to go to a detox or treatment center, do that. But if you haven't already, it is time to stop everything. In some ways, this is the hardest part. In other ways, it's the easiest. Either way, it is the beginning of the path to recovery. We must understand this first. The Eightfold Path provides the tools to succeed in this process of recovery. There is hope. All we need to do is take the appropriate actions. First section, clear, persistent, encouragement towards abstinence. We can stop. We can abstain. And that begins our process of recovery. Cause and effect. The core of what we need to understand is the importance of cause and effect and how changing our actions will lead to a change in the outcomes in our life. This is especially pertinent for the addict who has been stuck in habitual reactive patterns of of actions that only result in suffering. Sorry, I burped. Let me say that again. This is especially pertinent for the addict who has been stuck in a habitual reactive pattern of actions that only result in suffering. The cause of our suffering has always been our reaction to the thoughts, feelings, cravings, and circumstances of our lives. The cause of our addictions has always been the indulgence in the behaviors or substances. The cause of our recovery will always be our abstinence from those behaviors and substances. Of course, this should be clear and obvious. To create health and balance, we first have to abstain from the behaviors and substances that have created such a deep imbalance and so much suffering in our lives. Some may argue against renunciation and abstinence from all intoxicants, saying that the alcoholic should only have to abstain from alcohol and the drug addict from drugs. There are several reasons why we ask for complete abstinence, renunciation, sobriety. Most addicts find that their addictive behaviors continue on with the new substances without a full renunciation of all recreational mood and mind-altering substances. It is the phenomena of switching addictions. It is more common than not. The alcoholic will often end up smoking marijuana addictively. The marijuana addict will often become an alcoholic. What seems to be true about addicts is that it's not the substances that are the issue. The real problem is the addict's underlying imbalance, which is most likely expressed in compulsive and addictive behaviors with other substances and at times manifests in relationship to work, exercise, food, or sex. Of course, food, sex, and other behavior-based addiction, addictions, abstinence is not always possible. We understand that setting one's own bottom-line behavior 
will have to suffice. But we still encourage behavior-based addicts to abstain from drugs and alcohol. For this form of treatment to work, mindfulness has to be fir firmly established, and it is not possible to be fully mindful while intoxicated. As we will discuss in more detail later, mindfulness demands sobriety and a clear mind. This is the other reason why we encourage complete abstinence. To fully benefit from the Eightfold Path, mindfulness is a necessity. In the long run, all who follow this path diligently will directly experience the satisfaction and joy of a life based on wisdom and compassion. Drugs, alcohol, and compulsive behaviors have no place in the life of a sincere spiritual aspirant. Eventually, we will look back on our previous life of indulgence as adults, as we look up back on our previous life of indulgence, as, a, as adults look back on the ignorance of their youth, without judgment or condemnation, but with a healthy sense of regret and compassion for the previous delusions. Understanding cause and effect, or what is more familiarly, familiarly known as karma, goes beyond just abstaining from intoxicants and compulsive behaviors. It applies to all of our intentional actions. It is simple as this. All positive intentional actions have a positive effect on us. All negative intentional actions have a negative effect on us. Recovery from, comes from positive actions alone. Again, just pausing to reflect on our commitment to abstinence and our commitment to positive actions and refraining from negative, unwholesome or unskillful actions. When we act negatively, we seek refuge in our addictions to avoid the consequences of those negative actions. When we, when we act in positive ways, however, we create positive feelings of well-being and balance within us, which allows us to cut through our addic addictive habits. Here is a simple way to look at it. Positive actions that have positive results. Honesty. Generosity. Kindness. Humility. Compassion. Forgiveness, patience, nonviolence, renunciation, non attachment, mindfulness, appreciation, and gratitude. Reflecting on the positive qualities that we're trying to develop. Negative actions that have negative results. Dishonesty and stealing. Selfishness, greed. Unkindness, ill will. Conceit, 
self-esteem, hatred, resentment, impatience, demanding, violence, harmful speech, gluttony, indulgence, intoxication, sexual misconduct, jealousy, clinging, attachment, controlling, delusion, confusion, unawareness. To recover, we have to create the causes for recovery. To begin living more and more in the positive and less and less in the negative. We don't have to become perfect overnight. But we do have to strive for progress and balance on a daily basis. Understanding the four truths is at the heart of this aspect of the path. Number one, we suffer due to our addictions and the general difficulties of being human in this world of constant change and loss. Number two, craving is a natural phenomena. It is not all our fault, but we are fully responsible for our healing and recovery. Number three, we can fully recover and enjoy a life of sanity and well-being. Number four, this is the path. Moving on to the three characteristics and permanence. One of the key things to understand is that everything is constantly changing, both inside and outside of us. Our very bodies are in a constant state of change. First we grow up, then we grow old, then we die, and our body continues to change and decay. On the physical level, this is obvious to most, but mentally, it can come as breaking news. All sensations, emotions, sounds, smells, tastes, sights, thoughts, feelings, moods, experiences, and relationships are impermanent. They all have a beginning, a middle, and an end. Nothing lasts. Nothing is constant. Nothing is permanent. Just the rising and passing of phenomena in the body. As we all found out as addicts, it is impossible to maintain a permanent state of intoxication. That was not our fault or failure as addicts. It, was, it wasn't because we weren't smart or rich enough. It was because it is impossible to win the battle against impermanence. Of course, the fact that life is impermanent can also be good news. It can work to our advantage. This shit won't last forever, for instance. Impermanence is primary primarily problematic when life is pleasurable. Even when we are enjoying ourselves, we still have to understand this shit won't last forever. 
If we live long enough, we will watch all of our friends and family go through losses, illnesses, and difficulties, and eventually die. Many of us have already experienced tremendous amounts of loss at a young age. We live in a world of loss, of change, of constant instability. To recover, we must understand and accept impermanence. We must place the reactive survival instinct, we must replace the reactive survival instinct of clinging, grasping, and attachment with the wise response of non-clinging, non-attachment, and compassion. In a world where everything is constantly being pulled beyond our grasp, clinging and grasping always result in the rope burns and unnecessary suffering that accompany it. So again, I just invite you to take a moment to reflect on the truth of impermanence and your relationship to impermanence. This shit won't last. And when that is good news, this shit won't last. And when that feels like a cause of grief, something you want to keep that will pass. Reflecting on your relationship to impermanence and the encouragement that that refuge gives us, that, that Buddhism gives us to learn to let go, to live in harmony with constant change. Unsatisfactory. At the first glimpse of insight into impermanence, people usually wonder, if everything's always changing, where can we find lasting happiness? The answer is simple. Once we stop looking for happiness in impermanent things, we begin to find an internal source of happiness that is not dependent on or addicted to circumstances. As we accept the unsatisfactory nature of all conditioned phenomena, we begin to seek the unconditioned source of all happiness. This is what the third truth points to. What we uncover or recover is the liberated heart of unconditional freedom. When we stop seeking satisfaction in impermanent things, we develop a reliable internal refuge. Impersonal. Another aspect of the human condition that we will come to understand directly through the practice of mindfulness is that a lot of what's happening is not so personal. This will be revealed on several levels. First, that we have probably been self-absorbed for most of our lives, thinking about ourselves, obsessing about our place in the family, the community, the world, letting our pleasure or pain rule our lives. Even the codependent who may say, I haven't been self-centered, I've been centered on others, will, upon closer examination, have to admit that his or her caretaking and enabling arose from a deep place of craving a pleasant outcome. The codependent, too, is being driven by self-centered craving to not let others suffer or struggle 
when suffering or struggling is appropriate or necessary. It is selfish of the enabler. Because enablers can't tolerate someone else's pain, they create situations and relationships that prolong and at times increase the suffering. Almost every addict has been living a self-focused, self-centered, self-indulgent, and selfish life. Of course, there may be an exception here and there. Maybe you were the only altruistic junkie on the planet. What we most recognize is that the self-centeredness of the addict is just an extreme example of a universal human condition. Everyone is self-centered. We are born that way. Our minds and bodies have evolved over thousands of years with a built-in survival instinct that is both inwardly and outwardly focused. Humanity's self-centered craving and fear-based mentality is not the fault of the individual. It is not personal. It's just part of being human. Being self-centered is not our fault, but it is our responsibility to find a balanced and informed relationship with our self-centered tendencies. As we have already proven with our experience, a life lived with unchecked and untreated selfishness is doomed to result in a downward spiral of more and more suffering and alienation. We are all born into a dysfunction. Excuse me. We are all born into a dysfunctional system. We are wired with an ancient survival instinct that was created to keep us safe from predators on the savanna. We needed to fight for our lives for the survival of our species. We needed to be on constant alert for the next danger, the next attack. Although most of us are no longer in danger of being eaten or attacked, we still live with the evolutionary biology of a scared animal. Again, invitation to pause and to reflect on how personal we take our instinctional drives, our thoughts, our feelings. And the freedom that we seek to not get rid of it, but to change our relationship, we bring mindfulness, we bring awareness to how the mind thinks about itself all of the time. And we learn to not take it so personal, not to obey it. Cause and effect. Four truths. Three characteristics. impermanent, impersonal, unsatisfactory. So the last piece of 
understanding that is necessary for our recovery is about forgiveness. Underlying most addictions is a deep well of pain. The pain of our lives has been caused by people and circumstances that have hurt us. We have usually responded with resentment, anger, and hatred towards the cause of our pain. The more we hate, the more we create layers of suffering and confusion on top of our pain. All this pain and suffering gives addicts more and more reasons to crave the substances or behaviors that temporarily distract them or alleviate this pain. As we have already learned, pain is unavoidable. But suffering can be eased by meeting our pain with compassion rather than hatred. This brings us to the necessity of forgiveness. We can learn to meet the pain of our lives with care and compassion, but we first have to embark on the process of forgiving ourselves and others for all of the harms we have experienced and caused. Forgiveness is a process that continues throughout our lives. It begins when we begin to understand how to forgive. The practice of forgiveness has three, as three aspects or categories. Number one, asking for forgiveness from those whom we have harmed through both, uh, we ask through both meditation and amends. Number two, offering forgiveness to those who have harmed us in our meditation. Number three, forgiving ourselves for all of the ways we have harmed ourselves and others through meditation and living amends. The practice of forgiveness is done in meditation through the repetition of phrases of forgiveness. When we ask forgiveness, we say one of the following. I ask you, I ask for your forgiveness. Please forgive me for having caused you harm. I, know under, I now understand that I was unskillful and that my actions hurt you. I ask your forgiveness. When we offer forgiveness, we can say, I forgive you. I forgive you for all of the ways that you have caused me harm. I now offer you forgiveness, whether the hurt came through your actions, thoughts, or words. I know you are responsible for your actions, and I offer you forgiveness. When we offer forgiveness, we say, I forgive you. I forgive you for all of the ways that you have caused me harm. I now offer you forgiveness, whether the hurt came through my actions, thoughts, or words. I know I am responsible for my actions, and I offer myself forgiveness. Of course, we can't just say the phrases, or do the meditation a couple of times and be done with it. We can't just decide to forgive and magically let go of all of the past pains and resentments. But it has to begin somewhere, and it begins with the understanding that all harm caused comes out of suffering and ignorance. All harm caused comes out of suffering and ignorance. 
There is no such thing as wise abuse or enlightened harm. This is the core truth of harm. It always comes from confusion. Anger, violence, and all forms of abuse and betrayal are always motivated by ignorance and confusion. When the mind is clear, however, it is incapable of intentionally causing harm. The awakened mind acts with only wisdom and compassion. That understanding of harm has crucial implications for us as we practice forgiveness. It forces us to distinguish between the confused, suffering actors and the actions themselves. This is perhaps the most essential understanding in forgiveness, the separation of actor from action. Whether the harm that requires forgiveness was an unskillful act that we carried out, hurting someone else, or an unskillful act on the part of another that we felt victimized by, we must see that the act and the actor are not the same thing. Most of the time, the anger and resentment we hold is directed against the actor. In our minds, we don't separate the abuser from the abuse. But this is exactly what we must do. We must come to the understanding that confusion comes and goes. An action from a confused and suffering being in the past doesn't represent who that being is forever. It is only an expression of that being's suffering. And if we cling to resentment over past hurts, we simply increase our own suffering. By holding on to our anger and resentment, we make our lives more difficult than they need to be. At the same time, we also understand cause and effect, and we know that everyone is fully responsible for their actions. We don't have to punish. Everyone is already fully accountable for what they have done. Some actions may not be forgivable, but all actors are. There is always the possibility of compassion for the actor, the person whose own suffering has spilled onto other people. There is always potential for mercy towards the suffering and confused person who hurts another. To recover, we must clearly see that we have been in a lot of pain for a long time and that our pain has affected others. Then we can begin to see that the people towards whom we have been holding resentment had also been in pain and that they had spilled their pain onto us. This allows us to separate the person from the action and finally see the confused human being behind his or her hurtful act. This may be the hardest part, not associating the people with their actions, but seeing them as confused human beings trying their best and failing miserably, just as we may have at times. Most of us have found that having a compassionate attitude towards everyone in our life is incredibly challenging.
it may take years of trying and failing to come to a real sense of this understanding. That's a common experience because forgiveness can't be forced. Having held on to anger and resentment for so long, we have allowed that reaction to become our habit. And habits take time and intentional action to break. Through forgiveness, we retrain our mind and heart to respond in a new and more useful way. By separating the actor from the action, we get to the root of the suffering, both caused and experienced. This is a counterintuitive process. Our biological instinct is to respond to all forms of pain with aversion, anger, hatred, and resentment the basic survival instinct of the human animal. It works quite well to protect us from the external harm, yet it seems to create an even more harmful inner experience. The process of forgiveness is the process of freeing oneself from internal suffering. But forgiveness is not just a selfish pursuit of personal happiness for addicts. It is a necessity of our recovery. If we don't forgive, we will never maintain abstinence. Resentment will lead to to relapse over and over again and again. The great thing is is that this not only leads to healing in ourselves, it alleviates suffering in the world. As each one of us frees ourselves from resentments that cause suffering, We simultaneously relieve our friends, family, and community of the burden of our unhappiness and the wreckage of our addictions. This is not a philosophical proposal. It is a verified and practical truth. Through our suffering and lack of forgiveness, we tend to do all kinds of harmful, hurtful things. We close ourselves off from love out of fear of further pains, or betrayals. To forgive may leave us feeling vulnerable, but you will come to see that it is perfectly safe, even liberating, to be vulnerable. A common feeling among many who have felt injured by others is that forgiveness is a gift that the offender has not earned. Yet, does our lack of forgiveness really punish them? Or does it just make our hearts hard and our lives unpleasant. Is forgiveness a gift to others or to oneself? What do you think? Is forgiveness a gift to others or to oneself? When it comes to forgiving ourselves, we are both the giver and the recipient of the gift. We are stuck with ourselves for a lifetime, so we might as well find the best way of understanding and accepting the pains of the past. It is in our best interest and the most beneficial thing we can do for others too. We meet ourselves with compassion rather than resentment. Though this sounds simple and straightforward, forgiving oneself is often the most difficult and most important work of one's lifetime. It helps if we investigate our mind's tendency to judge and criticize ourselves, paying special attention to any feelings of unworthiness or or self-hatred. 
If we can bring a friendly awareness to our mind's fears and resentments, we may discover that our minds are actually just trying to protect us from further harm. The barrage of fear and insecurities that may be, may be a psychological defense system, an attempt to avoid future harm, a confused attempt, of course, because resentment and anger towards oneself never lead to happiness. But if we understand and accept that we have been confused, we may find it easier to begin to meet ourselves with mercy and forgiveness. Responding to the judging mind with the kind of gentle patience and understanding that we would show a sick or confused friend. While some resentments seem to vanish forever, others certainly come and go. The most important thing to remember is that we must live in the present. And if in the present moment we are still holding on to the old wounds and betrayals, it is in this moment that forgiveness is called for. The experience of forgiveness may be temporary. More, be, more may be revealed. If and when that happens, we have the tools to forgive again and again. The truth is, the experience of forgiveness is a momentary release. We don't and can't forgive forever. Instead, we forgive only for the present moment. This is both good news and bad. The good part is, is that you can stop judging yourself for your inability to completely and absolutely let go of re resentments once and for all. We forgive in the moment, we forgive in one moment and we get resentful again in the next. It is not a failure to forgive. It is just a failure to understand impermanence. The bad news is that forgiveness is not something that we will ever be done with. It is an ongoing aspect of our lives and, a and it necessitates a vigilant practice of learning to let go and living in the present. I'm cracking up because the last... Um comment that just came through from Facebook <laughs> said, um, is this a cult? <laughs> What's your definition of cult? Um, oh, it's my shirt. I get it. I'm wearing the FTW Dharma cult shirt. <laughs> I get it. Cult is short for culture. It's short for culture. Um, understanding reality as it is. Karma is not a philosophy. It is reality. We're living it. Cause and effect. The three characteristics are not a... Uh, Philosophy, it's not an idea, it's the reality that we live in, impermanence, impersonal, unsatisfactory. Forgiveness is not a luxury for us as, as recovering addicts. Forgiveness is a necessity. If we don't forgive, you know, I mean, I, I don't know. I just, uh, 
I don't comprehend how people live sober and in recovery holding on to their hatred. I think we have to forgive in order to stay sober. It's, it's, our, it's our whole life. So um, those are some of my thoughts. That's the text. That's the script. Sticking to the script. Um, but I'm happy to have some dialogue. I, we've got a few minutes left. If, if you have questions or comments, and let's stick with the first factor of the Eightfold Path, understanding. What are your thoughts? Somebody's asking, can I share what I read about impermanence? Everything that I read is in our basic text, Refuge Recovery. You should be able to find it. You can order it from our website, again, refugerecovery.org. It's the book. Okay, I got some questions coming through. You say that forgiveness is a momentary release. With self-forgiveness, is this also a lifetime pursuit to forgive ourselves? It's a good question. Um, I think that the answer is yes. Everything's impermanent, so we can have these full releases, we can have these big openings, but then also we can cling again. So anytime we hold on to a resentment, anytime we, you know, feel ill will, even just judging ourselves or others, what's called for is forgiveness. Is so as of course our mind is gonna keep doing that and we're gonna keep forgiving our minds. It's an ongoing practice. Okay, slow down, you got so many questions. Um on Instagram, Chopstar is asking, how far do we go with forgiveness? Are there limits? Should I forgive the person who assaulted me? Um, I don't think that there are any limits. I think that we should work towards trying to have total forgiveness for everyone by separating the actor from the action. Uh, when we're when you were assaulted, um, that was an unforgivable act. We're not condoning. We're not in any way saying there was anything okay with that. It was completely not okay, and uh, the person who assaulted you was suffering and was confused and was deluded and was whatever was happening with that person. And if you can see their confusion, then you can access some empathy, some compassion, and you can forgive so that you don't have to hold on. Forgiveness is for you, so you don't have to live with the hatred because it closes our heart. It makes us uh, unhappy. So we forgive 
and you can work towards forgiving even the worst offenders in our life. But we don't have to push it, we don't have to force it, but we can work towards it. Oh, I like this one. Um, is it possible to forgive a crook and also report him to the authorities? I love that. That's a great question. I think for sure that we don't want to get like spiritual flaky about all of this. And, um, and get so like, uh, you know, fake spiritual and, and forgiving so that we don't hold people accountable. Everyone has their own karma. Part of the karma of crime is, you know, uh, the authorities, like you, you know, so, I think for sure we can have non-hatred, we can have love and compassion and still hold people legally accountable to their actions. So I think for sure. It's not a, you don't have to be angry to hold someone accountable. Um, Philip is asking, I was curious if you could talk more on the self-esteem aspect of conceit, self-esteem, and negative actions list? Um, good question, Philip. That's referring to the self-centeredness. Um, in Buddhism, conceit, at one point the Buddha says, conceit is the feeling I am superior to. And in another place, and you know, he says, conceit is the feeling uh, I am less than. So when it comes to self-hatred, low self-esteem, it's still this self-centered, self-obsession. Um, it's not seeing clearly. It's a delusion. I am greater than or I am less than are both delusional, right? They're both a confusion of the comparing mind. And so therefore, anytime we're stuck in this comparing mind and this I'm better than, I'm less than, um, we're in ignorance. And that's why it's on the list of negative. Does that make sense? I hope it makes sense. Thank you, Atox. I'm glad you're finding some help here. Amber saying, I think understanding comes from being around a Sangha that has lived experience. A lot of my early recovery is that learning and understanding from others, from others, of course. The refuge in Sangha is so big. There's a question on Instagram. I think this is important. I don't know that I address it well in that um, piece of refuge recovery where Liz is saying, I find it difficult to forgive people who try to control me. I struggle with that. It happens a lot when I don't uh, sing their tune. They shun me or they make me feel badly. I'm tired of this pattern. Um, the one piece that, I, you know, I, I might edit this. At some point this will be edited. And there's a couple of pieces that I feel like are important that are missing a little bit. But... Um, one of those is the importance of boundaries, is that um, just because we forgive somebody doesn't mean that um, 
we need to reconcile with them. Uh, and that might be somewhere else in the book, but it wasn't in that section on forgiveness. And that if somebody's trying to control us, um, having an appropriate boundary is a wise response. Um, so we can have all of the forgiveness and all of the compassion and still good boundaries. Chris, um, celebrating 31 years of being sober. Can't hit a meeting though, thank you. I found out about your program by chance. Uh, Chris, welcome. Congratulations on 31 years of recovery and glad you um, found us by chance. And if you're not already checking out the Refuge Recovery meetings, there's meetings every day, refugerecovery.org, uh, online, all of the uh, Zoom meetings. Join us for some of those. Uh, Jeremy asks, oh, I'm going to throw this one on the screen. Is there a daily program for living like steps 10 and 11 of the 12-step program in this program? Um, Jeremy, I don't know if you've read the book yet or not, or how familiar you are with this, but all the whole Eightfold Path is about uh, daily living. Um, we have inventories in the first truth and the second truth, and, and some do some for the third truth. There are some inventories. There is a, a process that we go through. But all of the Eightfold Path is daily application. Mindfulness and concentration, effort and um, wise action, wise communication, livelihood, understanding, forgiveness, all of the stuff, intentions, everything that I'm talking about is the... Um, equivalent to, you know, steps 10, 11, and the 12 steps. It's all of our life is our spiritual practice. Our recovery becomes bringing mindfulness to everything, practicing renunciation, practicing generosity, love and service. All of those principles are what we're doing in Refuge Recovery. Somebody posted the meetings. Let's see what else we got over here. Um, Peter says, real quick off topic. I just finished my inventory, but have no one to share with because the whole COVID thing. I told my mentor I was done and I got no response and I don't want to share it with a friend or people. I was in 12-step fellowship with any suggestions. Um, well, uh, I don't know, my first thought is, uh, you know, maybe you need a new mentor if they're not uh, available. You do want a mentor who is who does respond. And if you're done with your uh, inventory, these inventories are so important and they're so hard. And if you've done that hard work of doing it, you know, it's so good to share it, get it, get it done, move on to the next one, move on to the next process. Um, you know, find a new mentor uh, or, you know, tell your mentor, hey, like, Zoom appointment, I want to get this, uh, I want to share this, this inventory with you. Put some pressure on or find someone new. Um, okay, I think that we're just about out of time. 
There's a bunch of other really good questions, but um, I've only got a couple minutes left. Let me see if I can choose one last one. Um, okay, last one. Putting you on the screen, Opal, hope you don't mind. When helping someone establish a practice in early recovery, it's difficult for them to practice metta. What would you encourage mentors to continue to suggest, what I can to continue to suggest it or move on to something like the foundations and shelve metta for a while? Um, I feel pretty, I feel pretty okay about asking people to do things that are difficult. It's difficult for them to practice metta. It's difficult to practice forgiveness. It's difficult to get to meetings. It's difficult to not be self-centered and be of service. It's difficult to, recovery is fucking difficult. Um... If we don't face the causes of our difficulties, if we don't, you know, and, and loving kindness is hard when we hate ourselves, when we feel unworthy. Forgiveness is hard. But if we don't forgive that self-hatred, if we don't push through the difficulty, if we don't support uh, the people that we're mentoring and encourage and that sort of like, you can do this, even if they're doing it for five or 10 minutes at a time, if we don't encourage it and we let people bypass it, I just uh, am afraid that that will not be um, of service to them, that that will not be, it's not a loving thing to do to be too um, enabling of people, avoiding the hard work that we need to do. So my own feeling, and you know, what we say in Refuge is from the beginning, mindfulness and forgiveness, or metta, metta is a form of forgiveness, but mindfulness and heart practice every other day, alternating them, going back and forth, and if it's difficult, keep going. So uh, Instagram is going to end. Thank you for tuning in. Come over to refugerecovery.org for more information. Um, we're out of time. I hope that that was helpful to everybody. Pleasure to be here with you. Um, this will be posted on the um, YouTube channel. Please... Um, please follow the YouTube channel and please consider donating to the nonprofit Refuge Recovery World Services at refugerecovery.org. And uh, go to meetings, do your inventories, uh, help each other, stay sober, help each other uh, through this difficult time. Stay connected, reach out to the new people, reach out to the old people, and um, Many goodness that comes from our practice of refuge recovery be offered outward in all directions. Together, may we create a positive change on this planet. Thank you, and uh, I'll be back next week with the second, second inventory, or second factor of the um, Eightfold Path, where we'll talk about intention, and uh, I'll see you guys then. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Refuge Recovery Podcast. 
To learn more about our program of recovery and to connect with others on the Refuge Recovery Path, visit our website, refugerecovery.org, where you will find information, meditations, and links to both in-person and online Refuge Recovery meetings. This podcast is brought to you by Refuge Recovery World Services, a nonprofit created to support our network of refuge recovery groups around the world. Thank you for listening.